ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Today we travel to desert communities where although hundreds of k's from any beach, this American surf classic, Wipeout from the 60s, is guaranteed to get the dance floor thumping. A bit of a fast music on that, um, when they play guitar and let the, you know, the guitar is doing it very well, let the guitar talk and uh, you know, kids can hear it really fast and that's why they get up and dance. And we go searching for liquid gold in the West Australian goldfields. I remember, you know, like if Nana got a scratch or something. On their hand, they used to get the busted. Um, if Nana got scratched or anything on their hands or if they had a sore, she used to just come the um, an infected part. That was one of the main things that I remember with the medicinal use. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajuk Country, Perth. Australia's ski fields may not rival the French Alps, Japan or even New Zealand for their scale, but a good snow season can satisfy those craving some fresh powder who may not be able to travel overseas. But in Tasmania, there are concerns about what climate change will mean for the longer term viability of the state's only commercial ski field, Ben Lomond. Season after season, the amount of snow is expected to become less and less as the climate changes. And as it diminishes, the use of snow machines have attempted to fill that gap. But that comes at a cost. And a study from the Tasmanian government says that cost far outweighs the economic benefits to Tasmania. So what does this mean for the future of Tasmania's ski seasons? Hobart reporter Eliza Klosser has been following this story. Now, Eliza, just how popular is Ben Lomond there in Tasmania? So that is the only commercial mountain that we have in Tasmania. There is only one other mountain to the south and that doesn't have any ski lifts operating. It's just run by volunteers um, and they haven't actually had a season in a little bit because there hasn't been a lot of snow. So Ben Lomond really is the only place at the moment that Tasmanians can go to ski. And has there been an impact of climate change on Ben Lomond? Yes, unfortunately. Over the past few years and even decade, um, the amount of snow that's falling on Ben Lomond every year is uh, steadily declining. And that is due to higher temperatures. And we can see this a lot more on mountains like Ben Lomond because they are low-lying mountains compared to um, Perisher or Threadbow um, in uh, the mainland Australia. And but yeah, because they're low-lying mountains, um, I think 1.5 degrees of warming changes the snow uh, level that the snow falls on the mountain by about 400 metres. So we have really seen those effects on Ben Lomond. And this year, um, it was obviously very hot. Um, there was a record high temperatures this winter and there was not a lot of snow that fell um, on Ben Lomond. So, Eliza, there has been studies done now looking at what climate change has meant for Ben Lomond and, and what can be done about it. What did those studies find? What the study found was that implementing or investing in expanding snow making operations, so putting in snow guns, it would not be economically viable, um, which is due to a number of reasons. Um, For snow machines to work, they need a lot of water and power. Up on the mountain, you can't exactly connect to the grid and uh, the electricity grid. And what they found was that hooking up the power and water would be very expensive. And 
in the long run, because of rising temperatures, the working of the snow machine wouldn't actually um, be viable in the future because snow machines need about negative three degrees to um, operate. You know, you need the cold temperatures to produce snow. And what they're finding is that climate change would reduce the hours of suitable snowmaking conditions by 54% by 2050. So when the Tasmanian government weighed this up, what do they conclude? They recommended that the government does not proceed with funding snowmaking infrastructure um, due to there being a significant risk um, and uncertainty around future climatic conditions um, and because of the diminishing marginal returns of reduced snowmaking days um, also due to climate change. So, Eliza, you've spoken to those that are operating the ski operations there at Ben Lomond and you spoke to Ben Mock. He's put a significant amount of of his own money into the snow machines. I think for four snow machines was half a million dollars. That's not an insignificant sum. What's been the reaction from him then if he's not going to get this backing from the Tassie government? Interestingly, he wasn't that phased and he is said that he's going to go through that report with a very fine tooth comb to try and then take that back to the Parks and Wildlife and make his a case about uh, why the government should invest. But at the end of the day, he says, you know, the government not investing is not that big of a deal for him and for the mountain because it's a privately, privately run business um, at the end of the day. Hobart reporter Eliza Klosser, thanks very much for talking to Australia Wide. Thank you. ABC Australia Wide. The antibacterial properties of honey from bees have been known for decades. But a new study analysing honey produced by ants in the West Australian goldfields could lead to new medical treatments. While scientists are only just scraping the surface of its benefits, Aboriginal people have been using honey from ants for medicinal treatment across the ages. Our reporter in the goldfields, Andrew Chanding, took a trip with one family who've been using the ants for generations. This is a solid, nice, big nest. That's a really big nest, isn't it? Yes. You never had them young so the day. What Margie usually tells you is um, the sort of countryside you look for, Margie, you know what you'll go? Remember, so, there's a mulga tree. This is a mulga tree in our country. And you're bound, and, and mulga trees, you're bound to find the honey ants. On the outskirts of Kalgoorlie, Edie Ulrich and her sister are digging for gold. But it's not precious metal the sisters are looking for. Oh, you can see them. That's a thing. I think we're getting onto the big chamber, isn't it? The Japan women are after honey ants, a traditional delicacy eaten by Aboriginal people for thousands of years. It's yeah. like it's like honey, case, like normal honey, but um, I reckon it's sweeter and um, more runnier. What? The taste it depends on the what they've been fed. You know the Into what is it? Flowers and that up yeah. the top. Plants. So what plants and the nectar? Yes, but um, yeah, it's sweet as it's lovely. The ants, about one centimetre long, live underground in the lands of the West Australian goldfields and feed off the nectar of the region's native plants. Storing the nectar in their abdomen, the ants transform into golden orbs and can be eaten straight from the ground. But for Aboriginal people, the ants also serve another purpose. They use them of those to always, um, you know, like if they had colds and that. Like with the honey, I think that helped them with the um, cold. You know, she used to ask, say, Marjorie. Mm. She used to say, "Ngaman ganiyua, lirigo, yulalal gani." So that's 
translated means get me some honey ants for my throat to make it better. And I remember, you know, like if Nana got a scratch or something on their hand, they used to get the it busted. Um, if Nana got scratched or anything on their hands or if had a sore, she used to just on the um, infected part. That was one of the main things that I remember with the medicinal use. For generations, the ants have been used to treat a range of ailments from cuts to colds. But now a team of scientists from Sydney are studying the West Australian ants and say they could hold the key to new medical treatments. Dr Kenya Fernandez, a researcher from the University of Sydney, says early tests found the honey ants were effective against a range of infections common in humans. We found that the honey was very effective at killing some types of bacteria and fungi that can cause disease in humans. And what was really exciting about this was that these types of microbes are actually ones that we consider to be really tough and really hard to kill. So an example would be staph, which you might know as golden staph, and this is a bacteria that can cause a lot of different infections, ranging, uh, ranging from sort of minor skin wounds to really severe life-threatening type of illnesses. While other honeys like that from the Manuka bee have already been found to be effective against a range of infections, scientists say more research is needed before the full benefits of honey ant honey are realised. And with the ants locked deep beneath the desert floor, getting access to enough samples could take some time. The honey is a really precious resource. The ants don't make a lot of it, so we were only able to really scratch the surface, I would say, of what we might be able to find. Uh, one thing is that the honey might be effective against a wider range of organisms that we've not let, looked at. And another thing is that there's a lot of work that could be done uh, profiling the chemical composition of the honey. So if we could drill a little bit deeper and actually figure out what specific chemical compounds in the honey are responsible for its properties, then we might be able to take some of those and use them to develop new therapeutics for humans. Whether or not honey ant honey provides all the answers scientists are looking for is still being determined. But Dr Fernandez says it's clear that more consultation between traditional knowledge holders and scientists can help provide real-world solutions to an ever-growing problem. Traditional uh, medicine can offer a lot of insights into natural remedies and in this day and age we're facing a growing crisis of antimicrobial resistance. So that means that drugs that we were able to use 10-20 years ago to treat common infections are less effective. Uh, and because of that, science often turns to natural products um, because nature is an amazing innovator and natural products often have properties that have been honed over millions of years of evolution. So it's a really good starting place for modern science to sort of come in and try and get some new ideas and new leads for developing new drugs. Um, First Nations people obviously have a wealth of traditional knowledge, um, which is an invaluable resource. And I think it's really important that we encourage two-way collaboration, both so that we can honour and validate things that Indigenous communities know about the land, and also so that we can use their knowledge to guide and inspire new scientific discoveries. Is that an app coming out of this? Andrew Chanding reporting from WA's Goldfields. Let's head now to North Queensland. As the school year draws to an end, Tarangawa High School is using lessons in mindfulness to help address behavioural problems and youth mental health. Baz Roddick went along to one of their classes and came back feeling a little more grounded. Lunchtime is finished at Tharangawa State High School and students are piling into class. They're rambunctious and full of post-lunchtime, end-of-term energy. On this particular Thursday afternoon, it's not books and blackboards that will be taking their focus. Noticing your legs and your hip. They'll be doing some gentle stretching and quiet introspection, focusing on breathing. 
For the past year, the Year 7 class have been part of a trial. See how weekly mindfulness sessions will improve their learning, focus, communication and resilience. And the results have been pleasing. What we're finding is a much more settled start to the lessons. Bree Clancy is a teacher at the school. She looks after well-being. And also just students interacting with each other in a more positive way, which is then de-escalating classrooms and allowing more learning to happen, which is exactly what we wanted. The Youth Reset program is part of a push by the school to become more trauma-informed. We have um, engaged in a few different um, programs over the years, and what we're finding now is just that really targeted, short attempts at strategies, so looking at after lunch times, coming in and doing some mindfulness or de-escalation strategies. I think the key thing is about, about being intentional with them, and, and it's not something that's done by accident, but it's something that we intend to do each and every day. Jasmine Healy-Pagan runs the program in the community and now in schools. So when we come into schools, we teach specific body, breath, mind strategies, and these sequences are mindful movement, full efficient breathing, and also strategies to help us understand the mind, to focus, to self-regulate. They're really important strategies for anyone that's anxious, overwhelmed, or seeking to find ways to focus, develop attention, and learn. The students begin the lesson with a conversation about why they're doing the exercises. They then go into yoga-like postures, move on to breathing, and finish with meditation. Anxiety, overwhelm, and digital addiction are seriously affecting the well-being of our next generation, mostly because when we are feeling overwhelmed, we don't feel calm, we don't feel steady, and when we're not well, you know, it's really difficult to focus, to learn and generally get through the day. Miss Healy Pagan says she's concerned that young people are not seeking help. We know that 75% of people that struggle with mental health, uh, this has begun under the age of 25. It's essential today more than ever before that we are proactive in mental and emotional health of our next generation because they are struggling really hard. Stay there, let's not move yet. A 2022 survey by Mission Australia found that almost 30% of young people indicated high psychological distress and more than half have needed support with their mental health at some point in their life. Dr Tanya Doyle is a lecturer at the School of Education at James Cook University. She says trauma-informed practice in education is about working sensitively with young people. When we think about the effects of trauma, particularly if, if children have experienced trauma in their developmental stages of their life, they can have real difficulty learning how to regulate their emotions. Trauma's on a continuum, so we can think about trauma as anything from an individual event that happens to one person all the way through to intergenerational trauma. Trauma is also relative, so what might be trauma to you might be different as trauma to me. She'd like to see more work done in the sphere to reduce barriers for students. Behavioural issues do have an impact in classroom environments, so it might have an impact in terms of attendance, but also in terms of engagement and also in terms of well-being. Our mind often goes to those escalating aggressive behaviours, but also we need to think about internalised withdrawing behaviours, so for students who are just not engaging in their learning. 12-year-old Tatum and 13-year-old Billy say they've gotten a lot out of the youth reset sessions. I did some things that made me very calm. It's been pretty good. It's made me relaxed and um, not stressed a lot. I use breathing techniques during class time. Oh, really? It's something you've taken up? Yeah. yeah, and it's really helpful, especially before 
we have tests, math tests and stuff. It's really good. 13-year-old Billy ending that story from Baz Ruddick. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. From blue light discos to community concerts, there's one song that gets kids and adults up on their feet in some of the most remote parts of Northern Australia. It's a song with virtually no lyrics and no particular connection to the region or even to Australia. And yet, people in the outback have made an American surf song their own. Eddie Williams has been trying to find out why. It's a pumping Friday night at the blue light disco in Mount Magnet, nearly 600 kilometres northeast of Perth where kids and the local police are dancing up a storm. But it's not the latest Taylor Swift or Nicki Minaj hit that has them on their feet. Instead, it's a 1960s surf track that has children and cops grooving in a town that's more than 300 k's from the nearest beach. Specifically... (laughs) Wipeout. Wipeout by American band The Surfaris, an instrumental classic known for its iconic drum solo. And Mount Magnet isn't the only place where the song is on the playlist. Further north, broom retiree Mary Portolano remembers dancing to Wipeout in her... Do do you remember that song when you were were young? Yep. (laughs) Was it popular back then? Oh, yeah. Did did you used to get up and dance? Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you think that song is so popular? I don't know, it was just a beat, I think. (laughs) It's just good to dance to. Singer-songwriter Nathan Cavalieri says kids were desperate to hear the song when he performed in the Northern Territory back in the 90s. I remember doing a gig, I think it was in Manangrida or Gove, like in Arnhem Land. That's what they kept shouting at me. Play Wipeout, play Wipeout. (laughs) In a 2021 interview with music website NME, King Stingray guitarist Roy Kellaway agreed that Wipeout was weirdly just a huge hit with a lot of communities in Arnhem Land. In the Western Desert region, Nurukajunka chairman Bruce Booth says covers of Wipeout still get kids grooving in communities like Punmu, seven hours inland from Port Hedland. Oh, the Wipeout, yeah, he's playing a bit of a fast music on that. Um, one day I play guitar and let the, you know, the guitarist doing it very well, let the guitar talk and uh, you know, kids can hear it really fast and that's why they get up and dance. But how did an American surf rock hit from 1963 become such a staple in communities that are often many hours from the coast. Safaris member Bob Berryhill explains how surf culture first took off in the early 60s. I grew up in uh, Glendora, California, which is about 35, 40 miles from Balboa Island, where Dick Dale was doing his uh, surf concerts and dances. And so everybody wanted to go to the beach and get a surfboard and get out there and try the waves. National Film and Sound Archive curator Torsten Kading says surf music from California was dominating the world's airwaves. Let's go surfing now, everybody's It came not only with the music, but with the, um, the whole image of it, the sun drenched, the surfing, uh, the rise of the teenager sort of culture, and, and it was all rolled up in surf music, and it was the first, I think, really popular music genre that spoke to teenagers and and young kids um, and they were able to make it their own. Bob Berryhill was just 15 when he and his bandmates, the oldest age 17, set foot in a studio to record the song Surfer Joe. When that song was done, the studio manager told them they needed a second track. He says the song was recorded within half an hour and it wasn't long before promoters and radio stations around the world started showing an interest. And I think it was one of the most popular songs of 1963, in Australia. The band then toured Australia and New Zealand in 1964. 
Although the safaris remain hugely popular in communities in the continent's north and west, their tour didn't take them away from the big cities on the eastern seaboard. We didn't have any interaction with them or anything because we were surfing on the, on the east coast. And Bob agrees with Bruce Booth that the instruments do the talking, with the song's lack of vocals helping it transcend language barriers. That's the beauty of instrumental surf music, is that the lead guitar is the lead voice. The words don't get in the way. Now based in Nashville, Bob Berryhill still performs Wipeout with a new lineup of safaris. Well, I'll tell you what, we'd sure love to come to Australia and do it again. I'm playing it the way we did, so you better get me while I'm here. Well, I'm ready to go. Safaris founding member Bob Berryhill, ending that story from Eddie Williams in Broome. And finally today, a lesson in cooking crayfish from one of Australia's most prolific cray-producing areas, Geraldton in Western Australia. There's no doubt if you can get hold of a lobster, they are delicious. But you can really blow it if you overcook it. Crayfisher Justin Peratina gave our reporter Joe Prendergast a lesson on how to cook the perfect cray. The key is to cook it as fast as you can. Justin Piratina, hello. How are you going, Joe? Good. What are we going to do? I think we're going to make some um, sweet chilli and honey medallions out of the cray tail. So so you get this, you bend the tail over like that, and you turn. But just be careful with your hands, because these will spike you. So now I I like to use just the the smallest crays possible, like just size, to do this, only because they cook a lot quicker. The bigger the cray, the longer you've you've got to cook it. Okay. So then, you see the tail? It's got all the knuckle joints in it. Yeah, these are little sections. Yeah, in the yeah. sections. So all you're doing mm-hmm. is cutting in between them. So you cut the first bit off, like that, through the shell. And then there you go, into that knuckle, just like that. Okay. So the small little, like that, and that just goes down, like that. And the last one, like that. Okay. So, so we're just going to get that, put that in here. So you're not taking the meat out nope. of those little shell nope, circles? No, nope, nope. we'll leave that like that. Right so we'll sit that there. We'll get a lemon. You can put some sweet chilli sauce oh, in there. Righto, how much? Oh, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, give it all. Enough? Yeah, we're right. Right, now. Just a little bit of oil, you don't need much because that, that's got that on it. Just, that's right, just tip it. You only want, you only want sure? a little time. Yeah. Just a splash? Yep. Okay. I've just got that on the boat in case I get Oops. a bit hungry. That was a generous splash. And you're chopping up a bit Some of parsley. Some parsley there now. Yep. Okay. That in there. And I'll get you to break off a couple of cloves of garlic for me. Joe. Yep, just mix it around like that. So we put the salt and the pepper in. Joe, everything's yep. in there. So in yeah. this we've got... Um, honey, sweet chilli, garlic, pepper, salt, parsley, lemon juice, yep. olive oil. Yep. Okay. So now the barbecue, so we can see this now, Joe. you can see, but it is extremely hot here now. Okay. That? Oh, that smells And you get, as soon as you get in there, the garlic and mm. all that. So you're just leaving them on there and... Sorry. <laughs> in a very short time we'll see them starting to restrict from their shell. You'll see it starting to pull in okay. when it's getting hotter. Yep, just and that means they need flipping or? Just move those into the middle of the little bit. Yeah, that's it. Look, so you want it entirely nicer. cooked? Well, what's happening, that's cooking That's cooking inside that shell. Yeah. So they've been cooking for, what, 
Yeah, not minutes. not long. Yeah. Not long at all. Okay. Yeah. So take it off or not? Yeah, I reckon. And you should be able to just grab that and just peel it out from the middle. So grab, grab one of these. Yep. Yeah, and, and then push it out from push the middle. Push it out. Yep. And that's it, like that. Well, that is really good. Mm. And it's simple and it's mm. easy. Mm. It's really good. Yeah. And so. Leaving it to marinade, you just get those flavours. You just get bit, the, the sweet chilli will go through it and the garlic mm -hmm. and the um and especially the pepper. I can taste the flavours, but also that salt of the ocean. Yeah, well that's the same as when we boil our craze, we'll just go down to the edge of the island and fill up the bucket full of salt water, and you can't you can't compare a boil cray in salt water. Then you can add as much salt as you want; it's never the same. Yeah. I don't reckon. Yeah. Yeah. Get that taste of the ocean. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. That is so good. Just buy one or two, and you buy them fresh off the boat. You can't, you can't go wrong. That's going to give you a lot of leeway of what it's going to taste like. It just makes you want to eat, doesn't it? Charlton-based crayfisher Justin Piratina there with Joe Prendergast, and that story was produced by Chris Lewis. And that is Australia-wide for this Thursday. I hope you're having a lovely evening. I'll speak to you again tomorrow. ABC Listen.